Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute. Should HER3 be considered a tumor agnostic target in breast and lung cancer? In this episode, what clinicians should know about treatment-related adverse events from HER3-directed ADCs in breast and lung cancer, Dr. Helena Yu and Dr. Joyce O'Shaughnessy continue their discussion on clinical trials of HER3-directed therapies with a look at treatment-related adverse events and how to manage them. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash her3agnostic3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Yu is an Associate Attending Research Director of the Thoracic Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Dr. O'Shaughnessy is a breast medical oncologist and the Celebrating Women's Chair and Breast Cancer Researcher at Baylor University Medical Center and is also Chair of the Breast Cancer Research Committee for Texas Oncology and the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Dallas, Texas. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Yu will begin our discussion. Dr. O'Shaughnessy, in this podcast episode, let's pick up on the clinical trials looking into HER3-targeted therapies and what we always need to discuss with any treatment options, uh, treatment-related adverse events. Do you mind summarizing what we've seen with these HER3 ADCs in regards to toxicity? Happy to, happy to. We've had two sizable um, trials in metastatic breast cancer with patritumab, the anti-HER3-directed druxtecan conjugated ADC. These have always these have been heavily pretreated patients. And the J101 trial led by Ian Krop was actually a phase one, too. So it was looking at various dose levels of uh, patritumab. And um, it was a mixture of triple negative patients, which usually have more symptoms from their breast cancer than HR positive HER2 negative uh, patients. But the uh, main toxicities was 116 patients. Nausea was the most common toxicity. Thankfully, very little in the weight of grade three, only 4% grade three, but 76% of patients had nausea. And, um, you know, we can see a low-grade chronic nausea with other deruxtecan, like trastuzumab, deruxtecan um, antibody drug conjugates, which we can talk about how to manage. Now, interestingly, uh, thrombocytopenia was seen in the J101 trial with patritumab. 60% of patients had any thrombocytopenia, and then 33% had grade three or higher thrombocytopenia. A neutropenia, about 57% of patients had any neutropenia, 42% had grade three or higher, but febrile neutropenia was very, very rare. Going along with the nausea, about half of the patients had loss of um, appetite, 44% had vomiting, only 2.6% had grade three or higher. There was some diarrhea, 41%. Uh, overall, only 2.6% grade three or higher. There was some anemia, 40% anemia, and 18% grade three or higher. And then there was some transaminitis. About a third of patients had any very rare grade three, only four, 4%. And there was fatigue. About 31% of patients had some fatigue, but only 2.6% grade three or higher. And then stomatitis was also seen about 27% of patients. Again, very almost no less than 1% 
had grade three or higher. And then importantly, alopecia, 25% of patients had some um, alopecia uh, as well. That's very important. It may be even higher because these patients came on heavily pretreated and had already um, lost um, hair. In this particular study, there's a low rate of pitridumab-related ILD. 5% of patients um, had ILD. There was one grade five, one death event from ILD, but um, a lower rate than, than we've seen in breast cancer, in heavily pretreated breast cancer patients uh, with um, TDXD. The other uh, study was um, in 60 patients, led by Erica Hamilton, presented at ASCO 2023, again showing that there was activity across the spectrum of HER3 expression from very low, which was only a small percentage of patients had very low expression. Interestingly, most patients had high expression, more than 75% of cells positive for HER3. And then there was a large cohort as well, intermediate expression, um, 25 to 74% of cells positive. And the activity of pitridumab, which was actually really quite impressive in a heavily pretreated population, a mixture of HR positive, HER2 negative, triple negative, and even some small number of HER2 amplified patients, the drug was very effective, most, most impressively in the HR positive, HER2 negative population, a little bit less so in the triple negative, but also in the HER2 amplified patients, very, very uh, effective agent. Now, with regard to toxicities in this heavily pretreated population, Dr. Hamilton uh, reported that 50% of patients had any grade nausea, um, 3% grade three or higher. There was a fatigue, about half of the patients again, about 6% grade three or higher. Some diarrhea again, 36%, very little, like 5% with grade three or higher. Some vomiting, about a third of patients. Alopecia, again, about 28%. Uh, some loss of appetite. Neutrophil count decreased as well, about 11%. Interestingly, thrombocytopenia was less a scene in this trial. Thrombocytopenia, um, any amount was only 1.7%. It was it is interesting that the thrombocytopenia in Dr. Kropp's trial was likely seen at the higher dose levels because at the 5.6 milligram per kilogram dose level every three weeks, Dr. Hamilton reported uh, very, very low levels of, um, of thrombocytopenia, um, less than 2% of patients having um, uh, thrombocytopenia. So that was, that was really very good to see. Um, with regard to lung toxicity, so in Dr. Hamilton's um, phase two trial in 60 patients, only one ILD was seen that was kind of believed to be um, a treatment-related ILD, one patient. There was another patient with pneumonitis it was felt to be treatment related. They were, they were coded differently by the investigators, but it was a pneumonitis. Um, and then unrelated SAE, there was a patient with pneumocystis PJP uh, was seen uh, as, as well. And another patient had um, dyspnea. So there was some lung toxicity, but only one was adjudicated as an actual ILD. So not very much, a little bit seen in both of these large phase two trials. So they, they were quite similar. What about Dr. Yu in um, lung cancer? Are there parallels or differences there? I think um, a lot of parallels, actually. So I think, um, you know, similarly, we know that these EDCs, of course, contain a chemotherapy payload. So 
We also saw thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, um, as well as leukopenia. Um, we really saw this to be worse for the first couple of cycles and then sort of re self-rebounded um, after subsequent cycles. So really did not um, lead to treatment discontinuation in the vast majority of patients. Um, we also saw GI toxicity, including fatigue um, and uh, nausea, vomiting at pretty similar levels to what you described. Alopecia, again, about 25% in the phase two study. Um, less uh, AST or ALT or transaminitis. And then in the lung cancer studies, we had interstitial lung disease adjudicated by an independent committee. Um, of course, in lung cancer, it's a bit harder to um, identify ILD because our patients at baseline have cough and dyspnea and shortness of breath. Um, but there was, uh, in terms of adjudicated ILD as treatment related, the frequency was 5.3%. I think, you know, uh, as we both mentioned, um, uh, ILD is a class effect of these ADCs, but we really are seeing higher levels in um, higher frequencies in other drugs um, like trastuzumab, Derex, Tcan. Um, so, and, and then I think for me, when I think about AEs and their effect on patients, I want to know about um, the treatment emergent AEs that lead to treatment uh, discontinuation, right? Because I think is you know that tells us about severity and and whether it actually affects patients on the drug. And so that was relatively low at seven point one percent in the phase two study. So although there was uh, you know, significant toxicities that patients had, it really rarely led to um, treatment discontinuation, which is, of course, reassuring. Yes, that was very similar as well in, um, in Dr. Hamilton's and Dr. Kropp's trial. I did want to point out that in Dr. Hamilton's phase two, very, there were very little um, transaminitis. Again, that may have been reflected more of the phase one, two nature of Dr. Kropp's dose finding study with pushing the dose up to maximum tolerated dose. So, so very little liver, liver toxicity. The uh, main toxicities were nausea, fatigue, and diarrhea. So when we think about, you know, I think that both breast cancer oncologists and, and lung cancer oncologists are pretty familiar with obviously cytotoxic chemotherapy. So, you know, when, when someone on, you know, this drug or a similar drug that is a metagenic um, requires medicines for nausea, how do you approach that? What, what kind of medicines are are the ones that you'd select out of your armamentarium? Um, well, thankfully, we're very, very grateful for olanzapine. Olanzapine has made the huge difference with the Deruxtecan ADCs, um, both with patritumab. Nausea was, was common, you know, 50% in Dr. Hamilton's trial and higher in the dose-finding trial. Um, but it can be acute nausea, which we can prevent with our, our usual um, agents, you know, NK1 and... Um, serotonin uh, receptor um, antagonists. But the problem that we were seeing with the Deruxtecan ADCs is this chronic low-grade nausea in a subset of patients. Many of the majority of patients did not have that. But there was a subset of patients with very, very significant chronic low-grade nausea. Now, that has been basically eradicated by 2.5 milligrams of olanzapine at HS. I tell patients to take it, just go ahead and take it because you can always peel it back later depending on how you do. But I want to um, preempt that and have patients not go through that. It's made a huge, huge difference. How about you? What, are you seeing that same same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think the, the, the same kind of day of treatment things to um, mitigate the acute 
uh, uh, nausea, but absolutely, it's interesting that you said that because we absolutely, I love olanzapine. I think um, for carboplatin or my other kind of cytotoxics, we we do it for five days after the infusion. Um, and I, and I kind of have similar, uh, that's our cancer gu guidelines for um, carboplatin within lung cancer. So I've sort of adopted that same um, strategy where I, I continue, and then if patients continue to have nausea, of course that can persist. But I think, you know, of course, as needed, Zofran or Odansetron, um, and also steroid tapers. I think the dexamethasone um, can be very helpful. So really, just paralleling what we do with our other anti-cancer treatments that are emetogenic. So I think that that thankfully has been uh, more manageable. Any other sort of tricks or kind of unique toxicities that you've identified that require unique management? Um, so I, I have had some patients benefiting from the Durastican-related uh, ADCs, patronumab um, or trastuzumab, Durastican, who over time really complained of fatigue that was uh, impairing their functional status. I've had a couple of those patients doing very well and dose reduction really took care of that. Just one level dose reduction has made a really big difference for those patients. Not seeing very much in the way of anemia, for example, that would, would um, contribute to that uh, fatigue. But even in my patients who are very fit and exercising, they, one, one particular patient really had very significant fatigue, but thankfully a dose reduction uh, made the difference. We are seeing that some scalp cooling for patients that are highly motivated to avoid alopecia we do find that scalp cooling, now for a prolonged period, you know, two and a half, three hours after the infusion, in addition to during the infusion and before the infusion, really has helped, you know, prevent um, uh, or really, you know, reduce um, how much alopecia patients have. So that's been good to see. Very, very little in the way. What's your experience, Ben? Yes, um, very interesting. I think that uh, a great highlighting point of really dose reduction is. Um, key, I think, when they're on these drugs over a long period of time, making them manageable and maintaining quality of life is really key. And I also have seen really noticeable improvements in fatigue uh, with um, with dose reduction. Interesting, you know, uh, scalp cooling is less of a um, frequent thing in lung cancer. I think in part because, especially EGFR mutant lung cancer more than 50% of patients um, develop brain metastases. And on the clinical trials, it was 40 to 50% had, you know, sort of known brain mets prior to study initiation. And so we haven't done that, but the, you know, alopecia is a big deal. I think it's, you know, uh, very important in terms of people's outward perception of, of patients. And, and it, it, you know, you know, if we could help that, that would, that would go a long way. I think it would be useful for us to talk a little bit more about ILD, because I think this is, really the one kind of potentially life-threatening toxicity of these drugs. And so I um, wanted, I just had a, a case um, the other week in clinic. And so I, I would love to run the case by you, Dr. O'Shaughnessy, just to, to sort of see what parallels there might be with lung cancer and breast cancer. Um, as you know, I, I mentioned this before, but most of my lung cancer patients do have cough and shortness of breath. Um, and so it really is harder to identify kind of changes um, in these respiratory symptoms and also, you know, progression of disease is also high up there in the differential. But I had a patient that um, I was treating on study with uh, patritumab derex tecan and, um, you know, doing really well, had a partial response um, and really good control of his uh, disease. And a few months 
into treatment, um, he, you know, came into clinic and said, doc, I'm really feeling more short of breath. And, you know, I kind of, we do our due diligence. We look up, you know, you know, he got a PE protocol CT. Um, we're looking for infection, inflammation and acute kind of VT events. Um, we didn't see that, um, but he did have uh, bilateral um, interstitial infiltrates. Um, he said, maybe I've had like, you know, I have a grandkid that's sick at home and maybe I've been um, exposed. So in that, and no fever and no white count. So I guess my first stopping point at that point would be, is this similar to what you see in breast cancer? You know, what would you do at that point when you're seeing a patient who's symptomatic has potential radiographic um, imaging that's consistent or could be consistent with pneumonitis. Yes, uh, and we 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 follow these um, the guidelines that have been put out by um, you know, pulmonary societies, uh, et cetera, because any symptoms is grade two. If someone you know doesn't require oxygen and is not that symptomatic, but they're symptomatic, that's a grade two. And our um, and our breast cancer trials have have required the um, TDXD to be stopped permanently because we don't have data yet. There are studies ongoing that, you know, usually the grade twos are readily um, reversible with steroids, high dose steroids to start off with in a slow taper. And it doesn't, you know, you taper it down, it does not come back. Um, it takes usually more than a month for the chest CT scan to get very back, back close to the patient's baseline um, with grade one, which is asymptomatic. ILD, which I'll come to in a second, with asymptomatic, um, once the chest X-ray is back to normal or very close to it, which is usually more than a month, we're allowed to resume the, um, the Druxtecan-based ADC with a dose reduction. But in grade two, it's right now, it's basically treat, get the patient better, you know, have the CT scan, go back to normal, and we're waiting on data about the safety of reintroducing Druxtecan ADCs with a dose reduction. I suspect it's going to be it's going to be favorable, and I will tell you anecdotally, many doctors are doing that, including me right now. I have a patient that I that I did that to, and so far so good. Knock on the wood. Um, but what's happened um, in the breast cancer world? I'll be curious to see if you all are doing that. Is that we've started to do uh, surveillance, non-contrast chest CT scans, looking for asymptomatic ILD you know, ground glass or new infiltrates, et cetera, but asymptomatic. We stop the Druxtecan ADC, treat with steroids, and get the, um, usually over about a month or so, get the chest CT scan back to normal or close to it, and then we're allowed to reintroduce the um, Druxtecan ADC at a lower dose. There, and there are data. There are data that most patients, only one, in, there was a sort of a, in, in, the, in our initial uh, trial, um, the Destiny Breast 01 trial, there was a, an experience of about eight patients, seven, eight patients were, were reintroduced after resolution of grade one, and only one patient had a recurrence of the ILD. The others did not. Um, they, they tolerated it um, well. So we're allowed to do that. So that's in the trials of the Druxtecan ADCs in metastatic breast cancer, CT scans were obtained every six weeks in everybody, regardless of whether they had any disease in your chest. Most of us are and there were some ESMO guidelines recently published in ESMO Open, led by Hope Rugo, uh, looking at some consensus guidelines in the oncology world for Deruxtecan ADCs, particularly trastuzumab Deruxtecan, where, where ILD is seen, um, you know, not uncommonly, that it was recommended that surveillance 
CT scans in asymptomatic patients be done, and the, the wording was at least every nine to 12 weeks. I do every nine weeks. Many of us do every nine weeks to get a non-contrast chest CT scan because patients are benefiting from this agent. They're benefiting. We don't want to wait for symptoms and then have to stop it. So the goal is to pick it up asymptomatic, treat it, and reintroduce the agent, but at a lower lower dose. So what's going on in lung cancer um, in that regard? Um, yeah, so I think, um, you know, well, for us, for better or for worse, the chest is always part of our imaging um, because, you know, they have lung cancer inherently. So, you know, we are getting imaging kind of every, you know, I would say six to 12 weeks, depending on whether on protocol or, or standard of care. Um, and so really, again, the, the, the harder part about lung cancer is the diagnostic dilemma, right? Because we see new infiltrates is that lymphangitic carcinomatosis and just growth of the cancer? Is that infection or is that in, indeed um, potentially pneumonitis? And so, you know, if somebody is uh, mildly symptomatic, um, but not requiring oxygen or hospitalization, we always get our interventional pulmonary folks involved, um, colleagues, um, because we'd love to get a biopsy. As you mentioned, Dr. O'Shaughnessy, you know, these patients are benefiting and you know, saying that they have pneumonitis is kind of the end um, in terms of being able to continue this therapy. So if at all possible, um, that's been helpful to, to be able to try to get a definitive diagnosis. But otherwise, exactly like you said, I think, you know, try to hone in on the diagnosis, steroids, higher dose, make per kg, um, and then, you know, a, a slow taper um, is, is largely what we've done as well. Um, have you, and in lung cancer, I would say that there is not a clear um, time uh, where pneumonitis occurs. And so it certainly could happen up front, but I have had patients six, nine months in who develop pneumonitis. Is that similar in breast cancer where there's no clear time frame for ILD to appear? Um, the vast majority happens in the first year. It is front loaded in the first three to six to nine months, but the majority, the vast majority is in the first year. Unfortunately, it can happen after the first year as well. So we, we have to continue to be vigilant about it. And we do the same. If anybody's symptomatic, we do get them to, we, we send for them to pulmonary. They may or may not get bronched. You know, the more symptomatic they are, they'll get bronched. If there's any kind of a diagnostic dilemma, that it may be infection or cancer. But that's interesting what you were saying about getting a biopsy, your interventional radiologist getting a biopsy, if it's, you know, peripheral enough and safe to really see, is this progression of disease? Is this, is this infection or is this more consistent with a drug-induced, you know, ILD? A picture, so it's very, very similar. Are you doing, you're doing this surveillance, or you surveillance some CT scans, or we're checking their their lungs uh, and their chest as part of our disease surveillance, and so we yeah. haven't increased that at all. Um, and then one thing that we found, which I wonder, you know, with um, we've uh, looked at prior therapies. So there are, um, you know, as we know, PD one and PDL one inhibitors are very long lasting in the body um, with long time receptor occupancy. So patients who've gotten immunotherapy and then segue onto some of these targeted therapies can sometimes have an increased risk of pneumonitis. And so that is, um, we haven't seen that clear picture with trastuzumab derixtecan or patrixumab derixtecan, but that's something that we're aware of. I, I don't know if you've seen that at all in breast cancer where there's a priming effect potentially with prior IO. We, we haven't um, very much so far. I think the reason is that the IO is in metastatic breast cancer is confined to triple negative breast cancer. It's a it's about thirty eight to forty percent that are PDL one positive. Not all patients are are candidates, of course. And then once they progress, they go on generally to sasituzumab, which doesn't really have 
much, if any, you know, ILD. So then by the time we, we do use trastuzumab droxtecan later on in those patients that are hurt too low, but then we're, we're quite a ways down the road. So we, we really have not um, been, been really um, aware of that. But one, one thing we've learned is that if a patient had prior ILD, let's say from Everolimus, for example, mm -hmm. That is a no-go. That, 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 that really is a predisposing factor for a patient having recurrence. So any kind of a history of ILD, you know, um, patients with renal dysfunction, more heavily pretreated. The earlier we give these agents, the less ILD we're seeing in breast cancer. That's very, very clear. That's very interesting. But yeah, absolutely the same. Like radiation, pneumonitis, any history of pneumonitis. I mean, it, with immunotherapy, those have all been excluded from the clinical trials and really would not be that keen on, on, you know, giving these drugs to those folks. But yeah, I think for lung cancer, because everyone receives or a large, almost everyone that doesn't have a targeted therapy option receives immunotherapy up front. So this um, potential interaction is much more relevant for more of our patients. Well, this has been super interesting. I think there's clear, in, in regards to toxicity, there are clear parallels uh, between lung and breast cancer. Um, and it's interesting to see how the different um, treatment sequencing sometimes can affect um, the, the toxicities uh, that we see. But um, Dr. O'Shaughnessy, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really have enjoyed kind of being able to see how a drug that I'm familiar with is, is utilized in um, a type of cancer that I'm not at all familiar with. So uh, thanks so much for that. <laughs> Thank you. Likewise, very, very nice talking to you and learning uh, as well. But there's a lot of parallels here, lots and lots of parallels. So um, thank you. Thanks for a great moderation. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash her three agnostic three. You can find all the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.